everyone, Dr. David Perlmutter here. Welcome again to The Empowering Neurologist. We have in the past interviewed Dr. George Tetz. He has uh, done some incredible research looking at what are called bacteriophages and the potential role that they may be playing in things like uh, Parkinson's disease. He's now uh, working with the uh, COVID-19 genome and has some uh, very interesting things to tell us today about what he's learned uh, and a paper that he has uh, coming out uh, using that information. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, George. Uh, he is an MD, PhD, and is the co-founder of the Human Microbiology Institute in New York. Uh, he is, his research focuses on the role of microorganisms in neurodegenerative diseases and cancers. And in fact, he uh, has published some information that indicates that there is the suggestion that Alzheimer's may be caused by a transmissible uh, agent. Uh, his latest research, for the first time, uh, have shown that the, ba uh, the bacteria that he's talking about can actually trigger the misfolding of the proteins that we know is uh, one of the things that's involved in Alzheimer's models, and as such, this may be a target for new interventions. He's also done studies in, uh, as mentioned, how uh, these bacteriophages may play a role in Parkinson's, uh, that is how they affect the gut microbiome, and then secondarily, how that may uh, lead to a variety of uh, chronic human inflammatory conditions. Um, he, uh, his recent findings show that uh, bacteriophages may be, in fact, playing a role in Parkinson's and even type 1 diabetes, and what we've learned to uh, call the leaky gut syndrome, uh, the important role of bacteriophages. So we've talked about that before. And in fact, Dr. Tetz has written a chapter in the microbiome and the brain that I edited. Uh, I edited the book, not the chat. Well, I edited the chapter too, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, that said, though, he's going to jump right in at this point and tell us what he has learned with reference to uh, this coronavirus issue. Well, hello, George. It's really good to see you again. Nice to see you, David. You were, uh, we had a phone call, I guess it was yesterday, and you were uh, really uh, having some excitement about some research that you have coming out with reference to COVID-19. Where do we start? Uh, sure. I don't know. We can start very briefly with, I think I would like maybe to start that today it is obvious that the COVID-19, the disease that is caused by the virus named SARS-CoV-2, according to the uh, right name, classification, uh, is really something new. And uh, it is very important, I believe, just for all of us right now to follow some of the very, very easy directions that actually were guided right now by the government and actually to keep all these protective measures that will aim to help not only the individual, all of us, but also the whole community and will give additional gap and additional time for the medical system to get better prepared and to avoid such a disaster and terrible situation that happens right now in some European countries when people simply run out of crucial medical equipment such as ventilators. So it is the first part. But the most important thing I think is that we are very excited with our latest discovery that we have just submitted 
uh, an hour ago, helping us to deep a little bit deeper in the nature of COVID-19 disease and figure out why it is so deadly and what is its principal difference with all existing uh, coronaviruses that are known today. And so this is uh, new information. I'm getting ready to write, <laughs> write down what you're talking about. Uh, this is what was actually going to publication today from your laboratory. Um, right, exactly. So how do we break it down? Sure, I would be more than happy just maybe very briefly to guide you through this discovery. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that'd be a terrific idea. Let's talk about discovery and then sure. let's, uh, open it up to what it may mean, how we leverage the information. Good. So um, I will start that the first draft of this manuscript, it was uh, ready by March 17th. And we start our manuscript with some statistical data. And by March 27, uh, by March 17, the number of people who are infected with their COVID-19 uh, was uh, around 180,000 patients with around 7,000 people uh, who died by the time. Today, as we mentioned, we submitted a paper an hour ago. I had to change these numbers. And as of today, there are over 300,000 patients with uh, COVID-19 and over 15,000 patients already died. So, it literally doubled in a six days. So it is developing very, very fast and very quickly, actually even quicker than it was uh, predicted in the beginning. So I will try not to become too academic, but in these days, you know, I can promise uh, nothing. So why has the coronavirus been so successful? Why it is behaving in such an extreme way? So to address the question in our work, we dig deep into the viral structure and analyze the viral proteome or the viral, um, the viral, the viral proteins that cons that actually the viral particle consists of, and we analyzed and compared it with uh, other coronaviruses that are known today. So the short answer is that within uh, its viral structure, we have discovered novel vaccine and novel therapeutic targets that might contribute to the development of, um, of our novel targets for the whole medical community. And we figured out uh, the certain, certain proteins that actually might contribute why, uh, why the virus enhances the, uh, the lung fibrosis so aggressively. So the long answer is that we have discovered for the first time that within the viral proteins, there is a number of proteins that do have the prion-like domains. Yes, again, we're talking about the prions. So what is a prion? Prion is a protein, right? Uh, that is an infectious agent itself, and it has a very particular conformation. So once the prion protein contacts with their another protein, the normal one, it changes its structure, it changes its conformation, triggering the appearance of uh, the new prions. And once the prions, uh, once the number of prions accelerates, they form so-called misfolded uh, prion aggregates that disrupts the normal cell function and normal uh, work of tissues and organs. 
Moreover, the prion uh, cascade is the it is the primary reason for the development of different neurodegenerative diseases. And uh, a couple of years ago, we have published a number of articles where we analyzed millions and millions of viral proteins and figured out that the number of viruses to have in their structure the prion-like domains within their proteins. And after our analysis, we figured out that these viral, uh, that the prion-like domains within these viruses, their essential elements for the interactions between viral, uh, between the viral particle and human cells. So in this, our latest work, uh, it was the most um, detailed analysis of the SARS-CoV-2, uh, COVID, uh, sorry, uh, sorry SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, proteins. And we found out that compared with other coronaviruses, it have the prion-like proteins in two, its, two of its uh, structures. The first one is the spike protein. Spike, so if you imagine, right, so if you will imagine, right, the uh, viral particle, the viral particle is a circle one uh, with a number of um, uh, protrusions. That actually are that form some sort of crown. That is why it is named uh, crown-like. Uh, sorry, that is why it is named uh, coronavirus. And we found out that within the surface of these uh, of each spike, that there is a prion-like domain. So we dig deeper and figured out that the prion-like domains are localized within receptor-binding domain of each spike. So next, we analyzed the receptor on the human cells for this, uh, for this virus. The, the receptor is named AC2, and we could not believe our eyes. Within alpha-1 helix of AC2 receptor, we also found prion-like domains, and according to our analysis, amino acids within prion-like domain of within the viral spike interact with amino acids within prion-like domains on our host cells, ACG. Oh, this is really too much. I mean, that... that uh, Sorry? It, it's, really, it's really hard to imagine that uh, on the ACE2 receptors that you've uh, dis- found these prion-like uh, domains and they're similar to what you're seeing on the spike protein? Exactly. They are not man, identical. Oh they they are not identical. They but they have not to be identical. They're However, and that it's quite a smart virus this time around, isn't it? It is. And actually, uh, once we analyzed uh, the uh, the presence, uh, you know, of um, prion-like domains within the spike protein, compared with other um, coronaviruses, for example, very close relative SARS virus or MERS virus. There are no prion-like domains within uh, within uh, spike protein in these viruses. So, actually, we believe that it is one of the reasons why um, SARS-CoV-2 actually interacts uh, with a lot of human cells, uh, excluding actually the lung cells, because it was shown to have a very high tropism for other cells. The liver and in kidneys and in uh, in other uh, and in other cells within our tissues, it actually be one of the important things actually that might contribute for its high um, uh, 
transmission rate and for its uh, very high number of um, off-target effects, you know, when the virus attacks cells also uh, outside the lungs. So this isn't just the next-gen coronavirus, is it? I mean, it's been looked upon as, well, we had SARS, we had MERS, now we have this one, and and, it just sort of uh, looks like it's, it's a progression. But what you've identified really is is quite a different uh, experience, isn't it? It is. Uh, what's more, we analyzed and figured out, found out that the preolite uh, domains are also localized uh, within the nuclear capsid protein. That is an internal protein that is located inside the uh, inside the virus. And the role for this nucleocapsid is that it has to bind to viral RNA and is required for the viral progeny assembly within human cells. And uh, we found the presence of these prion-like domains in the very specific regions of N protein named N1A and N1B. Uh, Therefore, pointing out that these prion-like domains do interact with their uh, hum- with their, with viral nucleic acids. And actually, it fits perfectly well with our last article that was recently published. I guess I sent, I sent it to you. Uh, there it was published in Nature Scientific Reports showing that uh, microbial DNA actually binds uh, to the prion-like proteins leading to the cascade of uh, prion-like alterations in Alzheimer's disease. But the bottom line is that in this work, we got the same result that uh, nucleic acids can bind toughly uh, with, with the proteins that do have a pre-like domains. And the imp- but along with their just, you know, interesting scientific data, it has a very important, important translational potential. I will tell you why, because as for now, the nucleic acid protein, it is not broadly used, you know, for the um, it is not broadly used neither as a drug target or as a vaccine target. So it is not really used in the drug development. And according to our data, we believe that the prevention of this prion-like aggregation or prion-like interaction uh, between nucleocapsid and uh, viral RNA can lead to the prevention of the formation of uh, new viral particles. Hmm. So that's a key step then in the viral replication that might be then available as a target. How would you target that step? It's a good question. So right, uh, we have just received this, this data and these results, but uh, our laboratory, unfortunately, is shut down. You see, I'm now talking from home. Uh, hopefully, the situation will be changed within a couple of weeks. But right now, we all of us, we work remotely and we have a lot of buyer, bioinformatics analysis. So the work has not stopped. Um, the good thing is that our discoveries for both spike protein and for nucleocapsid actually opens the discussion for the use of so-called anti-prion strategy and the whole range of anti-prion drugs aimed to prevent uh, the protein misfolding and or protein-like uh, misfolding that actually leads to the uh, to the certain conformational changes. I don't know how to simplify it. Uh, so we're hopefully we will get some 
positive results and we'll be able to share some of our new thoughts pretty soon. Is there any possibility of utilizing, uh, utilizing some of this phage therapy uh, uh, or uh, to uh, interact here in some way? The actually the bacteriophage therapy is not used for the treatment of viral diseases. Uh, if we are talking about more, you know, speculative ways, uh, based on our latest articles, I can easily assume that the use of certain bacteriophages with the presence of phenolite domains on their surfaces might have somehow, you know, contribute to the amelioration of the progression of the disease, but. We have not tested it. Right. We have, let, we let me, let me tell you where I'm going with this and why I bring it up. Um, I just published a, um, uh, a brief review of the consideration of the role of the microbiome uh, in possibly the pathogenesis of uh, this uh, viral infection. When we look at the incredibly low rates in Sub-Saharan Africa and places like uh, Haiti, where they have a more uh, diverse robust, if you will, microbiome, it seems that there is at least a consideration, at least on my part, uh, that the microbiome might be mediating uh, some of their resistance or their better outcome as it relates to immune uh, function and uh, inflammation. So that's the reason I, I uh, wanted to tickle you a little bit with this idea of phage technology in that you've done this work previously with reference to phage and the microbiome. Well, if to talk uh, um, to talk through my microbiome lens, definitely that makes sense what you are talking about. If we will, um, on the other hand, well, if we will take a look for their statistical analysis of what happens right now, for example, in Italy, uh, one will see that the majority of people who die, right, they do have a certain um, certain underlying conditions such as oncology or other diseases of respiratory tract, like for COPD and so on so far. So, you know, uh, in order to, uh, to get into more details, uh, linking the microbiome and uh, COVID-19, I, I think it is necessary, you know, to take a look from different perspectives. You know, what is the structure of, of other population? What is the number of... Um, what is the number of underlying disease in their populations? However, you know, the, there are a lot of works showing the role of microbiome, for example, in the development of COPD. So, well, everything is like the question, you know, how to, how to complete this puzzle, how to put the puzzle together. Yes. And, you know, when you look at the, the multitude of so-called underlying conditions, including a BMI greater than 40, I might add, uh, and the others, coronary arteries, type, uh, type 2 diabetes, um, obviously immunosuppression. Uh, many, many of these things do, in fact, have disturbances or dysbiosis uh, of, the, of the gut bacteria. And I'm wondering if it were um, uh, possible to explore that and to try to determine if there's anything unifying about all of these uh, risk uh, individuals in terms of their so-called underlying disease. There are plenty of diseases that people have that don't necessarily bode for a bad outcome as it relates to this infection. So one would wonder if this, you know, if, if we circle back to uh, where we all, where you and I began our relationship, you know, a couple of years ago, 
it's very interesting idea. And once again, I really appreciate it. And it is, think, well, I would, actually, I would like maybe even to diverse it a little bit. Because the, hopefully, right, the COVID-19 will decrease one day. And hopefully, you know, it will not become the, some sort of seasonal flu around the globe. But anyway, there are a lot of other uh, human diseases, including the regular flu or a lot of other coronavirus diseases. They are not so deadly and they, you know, they're known as a common cold. But the role of microbiome and the role of microbiome and underlying conditions, you know, in their development and in the progression of uh, these diseases among uh, some people is a very important question. and. The well, let's take a look uh, generally from the regular, uh, from the regular flu or from influenza, over 600,000 people are dying annually uh, worldwide. So, the question, right, how the microbiome plays role in these very common viral infections? I think it is very, very fair question and it is very uh, fair direction and very interesting direction to, to uncover. Hmm. Why some are dying, why some are not. And what is the role for microbiome? What is the role for the disrupted uh, disrupted intestinal barrier? So there are a lot of questions that have to be addressed. Yeah. And, you know, when you look currently, as in today, and here we are, it's March 23rd, 2020, at the global distribution, I, I think that, you know, obviously travel and tourism has a lot to do with it. Trade has a lot to do with it. But you do see... Uh, you see challenges to that notion or those notions in that certain areas that do have that are very population dense and yet are not as involved in hygiene as we are seem to be having a better go of it. So one wonders if, you know, this hygiene hypothesis of Dr. Strachan back in 1988 uh, might have some uh, validity here that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's good to challenging the immune system. Uh, with not as hygienic uh, an environment? Well, it's 100% true because it's necessary to, to tickle. It's necessary to challenge your immune system. It's necessary to train it. Uh, thus, it will be, you know, thus it will respond much better for different, uh, different challenges, including the viral ones. So, uh, I agree with you that, you know, such a statement uh, can be further discussed and further studied. Uh, but anyway, you know, the people with a better immune response are less likely, you know, to um, really to develop uh, this disease just because it will be the organism is struggling. Our organisms are struggling with the viral part, with the viruses every time, every day. And uh, so, of course, uh, people with a better functioning immune system would uh, would be in much more preferable position. And there are a lot of works, right, linking the uh, hygiene, hi hyper hygiene, uh, with uh, with a uh, with a normal immune response or with a formation of immune system. Hmm. Well, listen, I'm hopeful that you and I can uh, touch bases again sometime soon and, and we can hear more about what you're doing. And uh, hopefully that can be translated. I mean, it's, it's really uh, 
breathtaking, uh, you know, and to look at it, how these uh, sequences are shared between uh, the organism and its, you know, human receptor sites, it's spooky to think uh, how sophisticated this virus really is. It is. Hmm. I will send you the link person. Great. At least Listen, for the preprint. Hopefully it will be accepted to the peer-reviewed journal also. Oh, I'm sure it will be. Yep. We're seeing a lot of uh, publications now that aren't necessarily peer-reviewed but are expedited. And I think that, I, you know, if you're able to tease through them, I think that's probably a good idea. You know, so we don't have the, the you know, six weeks delay at the, at the early. Oh, no, of course. And right now when we prepared these articles, there are a lot of really great studies that are right now just still to be on the wait list for many journals. But, you know, right now, I think the scientific community, you know, has no time to wait for everything to be peer-reviewed. That's for sure. Forward. All right. Well, listen, thank you for your time, and I hope we get to see each other again soon. Thank you very much. Have a good okay. day. Thank you. Bye. Bye for now. Bye. Well, again, thanks to Dr. George Tetz. He is the co-founder of the Human Microbiology Institute uh, in New York City. We wish him well uh, in New York City. And um, really grateful for his pioneering uh, research. Uh, you know, everybody's contributing something along the way, and hopefully we can solve this, uh, this challenge. Uh, I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Thanks for joining me here on The Empowering Neurologist, and I'll be back soon. Bye for now.